Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Austrian economist Friedrich A. Hayek fought in the First World War, lived through the Great Depression and the rise of fascism, and enjoyed a post-war career as an influential economist, eventually winning the Nobel Prize. He is known to us today as a champion of classical liberal thought and author of The Road to Serfdom. In this episode of Political Economy, I'm joined by Bruce Caldwell to learn more about Hayek's life and ideas. Bruce is a research professor of economics at Duke University and the general editor of The Collected Works of F.A. Hayek. He's also the author of 2004's Hayek's Challenge, an intellectual biography of F.A. Hayek. Bruce's latest book is Hayek, A Life, 1899-1950 with Hans-Jörg Klausinger. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Who is F.A. Hayek? Who is F.A. Hayek? Now, if you look at the cover of the book, it's it, you'll see a, you'll see a uh, a man uh, dressed as they might in uh, pre-war Austria, perhaps. In Lederhosen. Yes. With a tie and a pipe standing with a mountain behind him. So F.A. Hayek was from Austria. Uh, we certainly are trying to signal that with the particular photograph that we used on the on the cover of the book. So Hayek was born in Austria, but he moved to London, to the London School of Economics in the 1930s. Uh, he's an economist. He spent uh, a good part of his academic career at the London School of Economics between 1931 and 1950. And we're writing a biography on him. My, my co-author is Hans-Jörg Klausinger, that is going to cover his entire life, which was from 1899 to 1992. So the book that you're talking about is Hayek, A Life, 1899 to 1950, the first, the first volume of it. Uh, he's known as a free market economist. He is someone who had a famous enough battle with John Maynard Keynes that uh, two rap videos have been uh, made that uh, depict the battle or the terms of the battle. Uh, he's a critic of socialism. So what economists or historians of economic thought uh, call the socialist calculation debate is something that he engaged in in the 1930s. He uh, was someone who was a, a, a big defender of classical liberalism. And this took many forms. First, the attack on socialism, but then as the 30s started to wind its way down, it was clear that uh, World War II was coming. In the, in the late 30s, he was trying to figure out the set of ideas that made the world fall apart in the 20th century. So he had a project called the Abuse and Decline of Reason Project, and his most famous book, The Road to Serfdom, is something that came out of that project, where it was a, a critique, again, of, of socialism and talked about it, though, more in, in political terms rather than in economic terms, which is the sort of critique he was offering in the 1930s. And probably the most famous episode that we're also dealing with in this book that is associated with his defense of liberalism is The Road to Serfdom ended up being a very popular book when it was published in 1944. This enabled him to make some contacts, which uh, helped fund a meeting that took place in Mont Pelerin in Switzerland in 1947, 
and that was the founding meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society, which is a society of, of, of classical liberals from around the globe that met there. And they continued to meet. Uh, the 75th anniversary meeting was in Oslo in, in, in 2022. So that gives you a little taste of who he was, a free market economist, a, a, a classical liberal, uh, and someone who, uh, in our book, we say it's a 20th century life. He, he was he was either lucky or unfortunate enough to witness a huge number of, of important events. He fought in World War I. He got the Spanish flu. He lived through the hyperinflation that took place in, in Central Europe after the war, uh, lived through the Great Depression, uh, saw the rise of fascism, saw the rise of the Russian Revolution, rise of communism, uh, the Second World War. Uh, he didn't fight in that, but that's when he did, as I said, that, that seminal work, the road to serfdom. And then the the really uh, rather brutal post-war period, uh, really right until uh, right after that meeting in April 1947, uh, the Central Europe and, and much of Europe was just stuck uh, the way it had been since 1945. Nothing had happened. So it was a very, uh, very uh, horrible <laughs> but interesting time that he lived through. And then it, it goes on in volume two. We'll, we'll, we'll cover the second part of his life. That's who F.A. Hayek was. Long answer to a short question. <laughs> no, that's great. During the financial crisis, uh, you know, 2007, 2009, there was sort of a resurgence of interest in Hayek. Um, what about his, um, his, his, uh, his ideas made him relevant during that period? So the Austrian business cycle theory, which is what his theory is sometimes termed, uh, Austrian because it derives both from his work, but also the work of one of his mentors, Ludwig von Mises, basically says that you get a business cycle because of problems with money. <laughs> and uh, the basic idea without going into too many technicalities is that if interest rates get held too low for too long, that causes uh, distortions in this what they call the structure of production. So too many capital goods, too many things that are financed by low interest rates get built. They can't all be bought. And that's what generates the business cycle. So that was his Austrian theory. And if you think of 2008, 2009, you go out to a place like Las Vegas or go down to Miami and you see all these construction projects that are sitting there unfinished, that's a, that's a distortion in the structure of production right there. You have physical evidence of that. So there was interest, I think, in, in Austrian business cycle theory for that, for that reason, because it is, it is one of those theories that talk about uh, distortions that, uh, that that take place when uh, when you've got a, a interest rates are very good at at, at allocating goods through time it, it, in a sense interest rates are a price uh, that that coordinates intertemporal consumption production decisions and if it's if it's at the wrong level uh, it, can, it can also cause these sorts of problems that was the the underlying idea in the Austrian theory and I think that that's something people picked up on. Now, all that said, I think that it, it you know, that that interest was a was a passing one because basically, uh, business cycles are very complex things, and lots of different things were going on. Uh, but that was one element of it. So, I mean, they, they, you know, people have have talked about that as an element of it, but I think there was other things going on too. Just saying that as a, as a general 
it's interesting because I think most people are familiar with Hayek are probably less familiar with with his theories about money and interest rate mm-hmm. and more about his defense of classical liberalism. Yet it was that uh, the it was that other work which he focused more, I think, in the first part of his career that sort of brought him again uh, to the to the public's attention. And of course, was then he was then placed in opposition yeah. with John Maynard Keynes, who is yeah. sort of this dance, <laughs> this historical dance between the two, which is uh, uh, which has now become uh, quite famous, p- partly through those rap videos. Yeah. Well, it was it, the, what actually happened is actually a wonderful story um, because Hayek was invited to give some lectures at the London School of Economics, and these lectures took place in January of 1931. So the yeah, the Great Depression was getting underway, and they were lectures, four different lectures. The first one was uh, a history of writers who had written about money in various different languages. Uh, second lecture and third lecture was the Austrian business cycle theory, which no one in London had really known anything about. And the fourth one was looking at the policy implications of it. So it was really a tour de force. I mean, they they on the basis of these four lectures, they extended him an offer to become a visiting uh, for a year. And that was followed by an offer of a named chair, the Took chair uh, in economic science. Uh, so he he it, it made his career. Uh, and uh, in the summer of that first year, when he was coming just for the for the one year appointment, he wrote a review of not. Keynes's general theory, but Keynes is a treatise on money, a book called The Treatise on Money. And both of them uh, made use of the idea of the natural rate of interest versus the market rate of interest. That, by the way, is the is the phraseology that is used uh, in the Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, the, the, things get out of whack when the natural rate of interest and the market rate of interest are not the same thing. Um, and anyway, Keynes made use of that. <laughs> of that distinction, which derived from the work of a Swedish economist named Knut Wicksell, who wrote in German. Hayek knew all of Wicksell's works. He had two, or th- he had three different books. Keynes had just had read and picked up on this little bit. So Hayek's uh, critique was, look, you know, this is great. You're using the right distinction. I use it myself, but but really, uh, you, you don't have any capital theory. The whole use of this uh, in the model that, that Wicksell was developing yeah, you just missed all of it. So it was a really devastating critique, and basically, um, uh, it was saying, "Look, if you if you if you read German, uh, <laughs> you'd know there was a lot more to this." And Keynes was apoplectic, so he took the unusual uh, step of responding to Hayek's review as a two-part review. So the first part is published in the summer of of, of thirty-one, and a few months later, Keynes responds to it. And in his response, he not only says, well, you know, maybe I did made some some mistakes, but I, I, I stand by my point. But you should see this guy's book, Prices in Production. So he attacks Hayek's book at the same time. So it really was a battle. Uh, and and both books are so have such uh, there's a lot of abstruse elements in both books that made it hard to understand. So economists are reading this this you know grand uh, attack and counterattack and, and saying, Geez, it's really hard to make any sense of this. So it it, it really did it it got every a lot of people's attention. They're talking about it in America, you know, all various other places as well. So that was his entrance onto the London stage. One reason I I like uh, working on Hayek is there's just a lot of good stories. There's a lot of good stories associated with it.
you said he served in World War One. Did that change him? I don't know if there's a good answer to that. He 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 took a lot of risks, <laughs> and but he was always kind of independent. Um, he, I think, what changed him is how different Vienna was when he left to go to the front. Uh, so he spent a year on the front. He was mostly bored on the front. That's why I say that that particular war experience probably didn't change him that much because he end, he, he fought on the uh, Austrian-Italian front. And just as he arrived, they had made a big push that brought the front to a very wide river. And the Italians just wanted to hold the defensive position. And the Austrians were quite happy to have taken a bunch of territory because then they had access to all the food and, and stuff that was that um, in the new territory that they captured. So they were, they were happy to kind of sit there too. And uh, so there wasn't a lot of, of direct fighting uh, during a lot of the time that he was there. But when he got back to Vienna, um, uh, the, the world really had changed. The city was, was much poorer. There was much fewer uh, you know, goods. It, they entered into a, a very, very cold winter when they were actually, you know, taking things from the Vienna woods and, and burning uh, woods from that just for people to have to have fuel to to stay to stay warm so i think i and of course the austro-hungarian empire uh within a year uh when the terms of the armistice had been developed it had shrunk to just this tiny little rump uh you had massive unemployment as a result of that and soon thereafter there was the hyperinflation so they he he was living through a very extreme period after the war and vienna at that time was uh red vienna so it was in the hands of the socialists, and they had a lot of reforms that they were instituting, whereas the rest of the country was very conservative. And a lot of these mass parties, so the three mass parties, the Socialist Party, but then the other two, the Christian Socials, and then various pan-German or German-oriented uh, uh, parties, were uh, heavily anti-Semitic. So it was a, it was a very intense intense period that he, that he uh, encountered uh, after the war. And I think that that was fundamental in shaping a lot of his liberal outlook because he he rejected the the um, various positions that were being taken by the mass parties and supported a very small party that was secular uh, that was uh, uh, it was pro-German but not um, not anti-Semitic so a lot of the German defining yourself as a German party often carried with it baggage of who the others were right. that you opposed. Uh, and uh, democratic, so they, uh, you know, supporting universal uh, adult suffrage, male female suffrage, and uh, and it was uh, and 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 kind of liberal, not socialism, uh, but uh, probably left liberal. I think in his earliest days he would he would be more of a left liberal. He sometimes used to refer to himself as that he had a socialist period. That wasn't really true, but in in, in current parlance, he, he you know he was kind of a left liberal. And then he 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 uh, read Ludwig von Mises's uh, book on socialism, and and uh, gradually uh, that weaned him off any kind of uh, uh, kind of left liberal uh, parts and made him more into a classical liberal that he became known as later. And his family background. His family background is very interesting because, uh, and this shows his his independent streak. Uh, he he grew up he's von Hayek, so he grew up in in right. kind of a upper middle-class uh, uh, intellectual family. It was, it was a family of, of uh, intellectuals associated with the university uh, and various relatives uh, uh, were. Um, but he, uh, he, it was a very kind of restricted childhood through 
his youth and then serving in the war. When he went to university, he became friends with lots of people who were Jewish and joined a, a discussion group called the Geist Christ, uh, which was founded by by you know, most of the people in it were were Jewish. So he's he's running in mixed groups, and this was uh, this was really antagonized his his uh, mother and father, who were who were much more nationalistic and indeed uh, uh, at least tacit tacit anti-Semitism is the way he described it as as being something that he experienced at home and uh and yeah they weren't happy with his new friends <laughs> but he he could care less uh he wait, i shouldn't say that but he 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 didn't let that deter him because he he had a basic curiosity and he recognized that the the new friends that he was making had an education that went far beyond the type that he got in the gymnasium that he went to uh, uh as a youth uh, they were much more cosmopolitan in their outlook and in their reading uh, you know, lots of readings of, of things outside the German canon uh, that that he really uh, came to appreciate. So that was that was something where he where he really did uh, he did grow quite a bit, and he and he grew quite a bit in a trip to New York that followed right after his first his first uh, degree. So, uh, or his, actually, a second degree in nineteen twenty three. So how was he received in the United States? So uh, it depends on which period you're looking at. Um, in on his first trip, he got to meet a lot of uh, uh, economists. He had letters of introduction from uh, Joseph Schumpeter. This is in 1923-24, so he was an unknown person. Uh, but he he you know got an introduction at least to American life to the extent that you can be introduced to it by spending most of your time in in New York City in the 1920s, which is really a very intense. Uh, period and place to be at. Uh, but so in the 40s is when he returns to uh, America and it's to go on a kind of a publicity tour for The Road to Serfdom. And it was published in 1944 in, in March in England and in September in the United States. And he wanted to come over and, and talk about it. And then it was picked up by the Reader's Digest and this uh, Reader's Digest condensation of The Road to Serfdom. So it's already not a very big book, but the condensation is, is condensing it to 20 pages. And this came out while he was on the boat over to the United States to talk about The, the Road to Serfdom. And because of the, of the Reader's Digest condensation, uh, there was such enthusiasm for seeing him that his little tour, which was supposed to be to a few universities, ended up being picked up by a publicity agency that that you know, for six weeks he was talking virtually every day, not not every every day, but sometimes twice a day. So probably averaged uh, uh, that uh, not only to university crowds, but also to in, in public lectures of various sorts. So this was uh, uh, something that um, uh, depending on how one viewed the road to serfdom thesis. Uh, you know, if you're conservative, you love the book and and you embraced it. If you're if you're on the left, you, you'd say this is nonsense that we don't have to worry about government intervention. Uh, it's it's not going to do any any harm. And Hayek was a little bit <laughs> unhappy with both receptions because he was actually writing it as a liberal, and he's saying it. You know, I'm not anti-government. Okay, uh, a lot of the 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 easy interpretation of the conservatives, it's that you you want to have constraints on the size of government. You want to make sure that they're doing the specific things they're supposed to be doing and not doing things they're not supposed to be doing. 
Did it when uh, Winston Churchill hand that book out on one of his re-election campaigns? I, if only he had, that would really be a good story. Uh, but certainly, his uh, the the person who is running his campaign, I think, either put the wrote the the Reader's Digest <laughs> condensation or or the or the original into into Winston Churchill's uh, hands, and so he knew he knew of the ideas, and in a speech that has later come to be called this is in the 1945 British general election so it's it's uh it's Churchill uh is is the conservative uh party uh candidate and and he is arguing uh in this speech it's called the Gestapo speech is what it came to be called because he said look if 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 labor wins in this election where yeah they, it's not going to be long before the Gestapo boots are, are in the halls uh, here in England. Now, this is in 1945, right after World War II. <laughs> you know, the, the war in Europe was was just winding down. So and it hadn't even finished in 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 uh, in Asia. So, uh, yeah, the Labor Party candidate said he yeah, came back and said he's just re repeating the uh, the old tired ideas of this uh, this this Austrian economist. Friedrich August von Hayek. So they used to, you know, really to emphasize the Germanic aspects of 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 who Churchill was getting his uh, his advice from. So yes, even in that in that in that election, that you know, that the road to serfdom actually played a role, which is kind of funny. Of course, Labour won in a landslide, right. um, uh, so it, it it didn't really <laughs> didn't really help Churchill. And, and indeed, a lot of people said, "Look, you know, you've been in a coalition government with." Labor and other parties, uh, all during the war, you know, to be to be likening them to Gestapo was was a tactical error <laughs> at, at the very least. You sort of touched on this a moment ago, but what is the sort of cartoon version of the road to serfdom versus mm -hmm. what it actually says or what Hayek actually meant? So, so the you mentioned a cartoon version. So the Reader's Digest one, Hayek's thought was pretty good. Uh, although it was it was you know twenty pages instead of you know one hundred and fifty or one hundred and seventy five whatever it was, but in Look magazine there actually was a cartoon version and the cartoon version I don't know how many panels but maybe sixteen panels and and it it basically s simplified his message to if the government uh, expands its its size in any way. That is just going to lead ultimately to a totalitarian state. And Hayek was not an anarcho-capitalist by any means. He was somebody who thought that there was a role for government, at the very least, uh, you know, uh, police, defense, uh, protection of property rights. All of these are essential functions of government that you don't want to just abandon. Um, and he he actually thought that there was room for a safety net. He didn't want a hammock, but he thought that if somebody was in in dire, desperate needs, you know, widows and, and orphans and that sort of thing, that society had some obligation to to take care of him. Um, he was not somebody who sometimes, by the fact that he he did say he 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 thought that places like uh, the United States and Western Europe were rich enough to not allow people to starve in the streets. That that he somehow favored an extensive welfare state. I don't think that was true, but you know he 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 saw some um, some roles for government, and his major message was: what's important is to have constitutional constraints 
on the government. We see this especially in the Constitution of Liberty, which is the book that he published that we'll talk about in, the, in volume two in 1960 when he was at the University of Chicago that, that basically outlined the, a, a defense of, of classical liberalism in the 20th century. And, 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 and there he says, you know, it's a democratic polity with a market system with, with uh, protection of a private sphere of, industry, uh, of, of, of activity that's uh, protected by a strong constitution, sort of things that we have in the American Bill of Rights, says that government can be, the size is much less important than having the appropriate constraints on it, because you're giving the 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 uh, the monopoly of, of the police power, of, of coercive power to the government, but their chief role in that should be to present uh, prevent coercion by some of others. So it's it's to it's to fulfill those roles that I that I mentioned about about uh, making sure that property and, and and life is is protected. That's that's so important. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the simplified version is any government's bad and kind of the the not it's not a nuanced position, but his position was simply that that yeah it's it's it really depends on the constraints that we put on government and in the constitution of liberty he goes back to the founding documents and yeah, he looks at various countries contributions to the tradition that that the uh the american founding kind of represents now was it was it the constitution of liberty or road to serfdom that margaret thatcher held up one time and said this this is what we believe yes that the, the the story was that it was the constitution of liberty that she uh and it's a big book. So she apparently so she must have had a big handbag because the story was she pulled it out of her handbag <laughs> right. and plopped it down on the on the table with her cabinet ministers and said, gentlemen, this is what we believe. So there we have it. I'm always interested to see uh, how intellectuals, you know, what their sort of standing was, how they saw the world going forward after the uh, after the war. I think of someone uh who was probably thought of as a, as a science fiction writer, perhaps not as an intellectual, but certainly was thought of as an intellectual, H.G. Wells, who was always a huge optimist. And uh, he died in 46. And in the last years of his life was an utter pessimist. And then I think Keynes actually, after the war, I think remained a very optimistic. So so Road to Serfdom, is that, is that a warning? Was that a statement of pessimism? Was he an optimist? What was sort of his yeah. view of what the next generation would be like after world war ii right well that's a, that's a great that's a great question and it really gets to the heart of of why he did the book because he as i said he started the book as part of this much larger project called the abuse and decline and reason that was going to be a two-volume work uh intellectual history origins of the ideas how they played out in the 20th century and it was i think um you know 41 or 42 when it started to look like uh, the allies might win, that he became more and more concerned with the way that the world would look, particularly Western Europe, England, United States, in the post-war period, because there was great enthusiasm on the British left. During the, during the 30s, the Great Depression loomed over everything, so people were saying capitalism has failed. And the British left since that period, but also during World War II, we're saying, look, we're we're fighting this war against fascism, but we're also fighting it for the New Jerusalem that we're going to have a a socialist country after the war. And if you read the writings of Harold Lasky, one of his LSE colleagues, it's really quite intense. I mean, they're talking about, yeah, you know, socialism is the nationalization of the means of production, getting rid of private control of of firms, and um, and it, it, it 
part of the reason that he wrote The Road to Serfdom switched from the larger uh, two-volume work to a more what could be viewed as more popular work was his fear that this uh, would be realized. In fact, in England, after Labor won, they did start on a, on a policy of nationalization. And about 20%, the high point was in 1948, about 20% of the uh, of the British uh, economy was nationalized by that point. And, uh, and then they kind of backed off. They started to see that this, uh, you know, widespread socialization might not be the, the right answer. But he, he wrote that book because he was worried about the direction of various countries. And the reason he founded the Mont Pelerin Society that had that 1947 meeting was that if you looked at Western Europe uh, from 45 through up until the point of that meeting, it was it was it was horrible. I mean, there was there was Communist Party was alive and well, and and uh, in, in in particularly in Italy and in France, uh, you had strikes in the United States, you had strikes in England, uh, you had civil war in Greece. Uh, if you look in Central Europe, you've got uh, uh, the Allies, the four different powers. Soviet Union, France, England, and the United States each had their own zones. Uh, in those zones, uh, you know, prices were fixed. Uh, it was it was a rationing system. It was just like it what had been during World War II. There was no change. Rationing went on in England into the fifties. Uh, so it it was it was a it was the war was over, but nothing was happening. And the Soviet Union, in particular, was a was a thorn in their sides. At the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, they had a whole session devoted to what, you know, the, the, the current crisis, because they were just sitting there saying, okay, we, we should all withdraw at some point, but uh, the foreign ministers would meet and they met two, three times, four times, and no progress was made in three years. So uh, it was it was just after the road to uh, the uh, Mont Pelerin Society meeting in April 47. In June was the speech that uh, kicked off the idea behind the Marshall Plan. And that's what really started to get things going again and uh, about a year later, there was the German miracle, which was uh, kind of getting rid of price controls and instituting a new currency that that started off the, the German recovery. So it wasn't. And I will just mention, by the way, that the I, those two ideas of the of, of rationalizing the currency and then um, uh, d uh, getting rid of the price controls were things that they were talking about at that at that 1947 Mont Pelerin Society meeting. Walter Eucken. Uh, and uh, uh, Wilhelm Rupke were two people who are associated with a school called Ordo Liberalism, and that was those were the ideas that they were they were promoting at that meeting when they had discussions about you know the problem of Germany. So it's uh, it was I, I think he was pessimistic uh, with good reason, uh, not only because of the uh, political direction of a lot of countries, but also uh, the 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 lack of any kind of uh, post war development until uh, you know. Yeah, you know, a few years after the war was was actually over. Now you've also written uh, a uh, previously an intellectual biography uh, of Hayek. How does a study of Hayek's life add to your understanding of his ideas? That's a great question. So let me tell you why I did the book with Hans Jörg on Hayek's life. I had done Hayek's challenge, it, although it was has a subtitle, An Intellectual Biography of F.A. Hayek. It really focused on the what the subtitle that I had picked out was, was F.A. Hayek and the Limits of Social Science. I thought one of his fundamental methodological ideas 
was that we can do much less with social science than people want us to be able to do. And that that's an important insight, an important methodological insight for the way we do economics. And also it has implications, obviously, for policy as well. So that was my, my initial interest in Hayek. And when that book was just finished, when I'd sent it off to the, to the University of Chicago Press, I got offered the, the, uh, the option of becoming the general editor of the collected works of F.A. Hayek. And I said, wow, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. They said, well, okay, you, you've got to meet the family and they have to approve you to, to do this. Hayek was dead, but his, his daughter and son, Christine and, and Larry Hayek were, were alive. So I went to Devon and I went to Larry's house. I, I sat in the kitchen and had a long conversation with Christine. Delightful person. Absolutely <laughs> delightful. I was gobsmacked. Great stories. Wonderful stories. Wonderful raconteur. And then uh, she left and then Larry came in and we had a similar sort of thing. And we I had dinner there. I stayed over. And the next day he said, come on upstairs. I want you to come up to my library. And it was jam-packed with fascinating stuff uh, from Hayek's past. Uh, there was personal stuff. There was there were all these reviews. There were maps that I thought were um, of, because he was a great skier and a mountaineer, I, I figured these were maps from, from that period. They were actually the maps that he was using at the front in World War I, because he was an artilleryman. They, they had to know exactly where they were and what, they, what their positions were and what, what they'd be doing. Uh, there was a there was a, a, a photographic album that he had composed when he was 16 and going along with his father. His father was a, a medical doctor who loved botany. So they'd go out in the countryside and he would take photographs of new specimens of orchids that they had found. Uh, there were family photographs. There's photographs of him on his New York trip. Uh, all this, uh, there's playbills. He started going to theater when he was age 11. And at one point, uh, Larry Hayek, when he was leading me into the library, he you know, says, we've got all sorts of stuff here. He starts showing me stuff. And he holds up a doc, holds up a folder and he says, ah, and there's some very interesting stuff in here. It's the divorce file. And I said, whoa, you know, and he, he obviously wanted me to look at it. Now, this is in the early 2000s. This I didn't have a cell phone then. Maybe other people did, but I sure as heck didn't. I didn't have a camera. All I had was me and a pencil. And I'm looking at all this stuff. I'm writing down furiously, trying to say. But I'll, I'll tell you, uh, honestly, Jim, I was hooked on that visit. It just made me want to know more about this person whose ideas I did feel I know I knew pretty well, not just methodology, but his other stuff. But that there was a whole vast other aspect of this. And as an intellectual historian, it was it was very interesting and intriguing and, and difficult because this is yeah, I'm used to dealing with ideas, not with flesh and blood people and their family members. And in this book, you know, I, I became very, very fond and close to Christine. We had lots and lots of interviews um, uh, and she always delighted me. And Larry died relatively early uh, in this process. He he died in 2004, I think. Uh, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Summer of 2004. And Christine just died um, a year ago this month. Uh, January second, twenty twenty-two. So she, uh, that you know, one of my great regrets is that she did not get a chance to to read this book because uh, she plays a very large role in terms of her accounts of her experiences in the in the house in the household when she was a child and and just uh, and of course uh, you know the the divorce uh, episode as well. 
nothing bring me brings me greater joy than to be wondering or thinking, boy, I wish there was a book on this topic and I can't find it. Then all of a sudden <laughs> to come happenstance upon a brand new book on that exact topic, which is what you've uh, written. I mean, delighted. And uh, I'm also eager, uh, no pressure for that sequel. When is that? What, when, have you begun that? It's, tell, tell me that's out uh, summer 2023, right? I, I, I wish. I wish. We have begun it, and there's going to be three of us working on that. So my co-author uh, for the first volume is Hans-Jörg Klausinger, who's a, a scholar from Vienna. And we're adding a, a second co-author, Stefan Koloff, uh, from Germany, because Hayek lived in, in, in America, he lived in Germany, and he lived in Austria in the second part of his life. So we're going to kind of divvy up the work that way. And um, I've started work on his Chicago period. I have two chapters and working on the third one uh, uh, right now, which was 1950 to 1962. He's there during the formation of the Chicago School of Economics. He's in America when the fusionist movement, the conservative movement uh, uh, that tries to align anti-communism with uh, social conservatism, with free market kind of libertarian thought, a very uneasy coalition, as we're seeing uh, most recently, uh, as, as it sometimes was then. And 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 he has uh, the epilogue to the Constitution of Liberty is why I'm not a conservative. So there's going to be some really interesting elements to looking at, at the development of his ideas during during the second part of uh, of his life that we'll that we'll be dealing. Now the good news is the bad news is it's not going to be summer of 2023. The good news is although the the first volume took us 10 years to do uh the first 3 or 4 years we were spending just gathering the material seeing what we had to work with. And uh that's all pretty much been done um and we're having an additional co-author. So I think it should go uh, a lot more quickly for the second volume. We're also used to working uh, together. And by the way, the first volume was delayed uh, probably almost a year, uh, just simply by supply chain delays and all that kind of stuff that was associated with COVID. Uh, we actually had the manuscript ready uh, a lot, a, a lot sooner than than it, it you know came out in November of twenty twenty two. So uh, 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 it's uh, it'll it'll be sooner than than. <laughs> 10 years. I'll, well, I'll, I'll I, I certainly hope so, because uh, this is a fantastic well, book. And I'm sure by the time the next one comes out, I will have given it multiple <laughs> re-readings. Uh, again, Bruce, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Jim, it's, it was it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. 